Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. It was like river wearing down rock. On this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Jeff Zimmerman. Jeff is a beautiful creative, a comedian and storyteller who hosts a fantastic podcast called The Reluctant Phoenix. His podcast is a series of conversations with a wide variety of people who have rebooted their lives, whether or not they really wanted to in the first place. The Reluctant Phoenix is available anywhere quality podcasts are served, So it might not be the same place you find this humble podcast. We dig into Jeff's journey from going to college for visual art to working in the early days of digital design and social media to comedy and storytelling. Jeff describes his early stage shows and what it was like working on stage making music with live chickens. We dig into what trauma from testicular cancer to the loss of a parent can do to focus one's priorities. I appreciated Jeff sharing the details regarding his collaboration with friend and producer Kara. We mix it up on the importance of food and the inspiration for his Cooking is Coping newsletter. I relished Jeff's perspective on the problems with the endless optimization of social media and why the world would be a better place with fewer Photoshop filters. I've enjoyed Jeff's comedy and love The Reluctant Phoenix, so it was an honor having him join me on the show. Links to Jeff's website, Bandcamp site, and podcast are linked in the show description. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Jeff, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about me, but I'll also ask you for some more specific questions about me that I can fill in. Um, so yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I know that like, I wasn't trying to big time you by being a little elusive that, you know, this year, I just, you know, you asked me to do the podcast and then my dad died. And so, uh, and then I forgot it was labor day and now here we are. So here you are with miss, I have a very small comedy career, but a big schedule. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'm a stand-up comic and storyteller and uh, you know i live in brooklyn i've been living here since 2007 and i started doing the moth in 2008 and that was like pulling a sword out of a stone for me like the first moth show i ever went to and ever since then i just have wanted to get on stage more and more and get funnier and tell better stories tighter and then, uh, I mean, I, I, I say, I use the past tense, and, and we all know now that what that means is until March of 2020, I blank. Um, and, then, and now, honestly, man, when we'll get, you know, not to, not to bring the closer to the top here, but, at, you know, my father was diagnosed with, June, uh, with ALS in June of 2020, and I spent about 50% of the past year in Virginia, caring for him and helping my mom and just like 
navigating the Byzantine health insurance, you know, health system to get him care that was ultimately incompetent and inadequate. And um, I really took a step back from performing at that time because I just couldn't justify, you know, getting on the subway to do a show in a park and then bring COVID home to my dad, whose lungs are already compromised. And when you, so when you say, what do you do when you get stuck? I would love to tell you, uh, I feel pretty stuck right now. And uh, I just last week was the first time I started going to comedy shows in New York city to like feel the engine kind of turnover. And I went to my buddy's show on Saturday and was like disappointed that he didn't ask me to do time. So I think even though he didn't owe it to me, I wasn't on the bill and I hadn't asked him. So like, I feel like I secretly want to get out there. It's just a little, it's a lot, you know, but, but ask me some more specific questions. Yeah, I feel like I'm ab- going to get glossed over some stuff here. No, no, this is great. And I know we'll, we'll probably dig into this as well. I mean, it was a, a few years ago now, but I, you know, when my, my dad passed, it was pancreatic cancer. Uh, uh-huh. And he was initially given uh, about three months to live on his first diagnosis. And then that was getting a couple weeks later, then it was just a few weeks. It ended up being eight months. Crazy journey with mm-hmm. for so many reasons. And and so I know just some of the things you had shared about your father, too. I I, I felt those in me, uh-huh. not to make this about me, but just more yeah. empathetically to just... I feel for you, man. It's, yeah. it's, it's not an easy journey and the emotions are all over the place. So I want to, want to dig into that. I know a couple things too. Um, I'm really interested in your, you talked about the, the moth as kind of like this interest to get on stage. I know before that you were doing, you were doing design work and uh, you and I do share this exclusive kind of design club that we work for assessment companies, like the, the creme de la creme of <laughs> yeah. design talent, right? Uh-huh. Everybody looks at those doing design and testing companies. But you've been in early, you were in early digital space too. Uh, what, it may sound like a strange question, what made it so easy to give those things up for, uh, for a different career? I mean, I'm going to give you the joke answer first here, Matt, which is like after a year of staring at a fucking screen, every time your eyes are open, you're finding it hard to to get away from them. (laughs) What is it about you that makes you think it's normal to have a glowing rectangle tied to your face at all times? Uh, And so, you know, and your listeners can tell I'm smiling when I say that, I hope. But um so let me, I'll run the tape back a little further. Cause this is all like, this is all a rich tapestry, but I studied visual art in college and then um, got really, really into it. And then had a performance art band with these two chickens that played toy pianos. And um, we would, we would do shows. It was very difficult to get gigs uh, because, you know, most of the bars and, and venues in Richmond, Virginia at that time, you have to, serve food you know if you're going to serve alcohol and and you know well although it's perfectly legal for chickens to come in through the back door and be chopped up and deep fried if they want to come in through the front door and participate in the rich tapestry of american music that's not allowed and um that's the kind of thinking that holds the south back so we we so i had that band for a while and then i started playing the drums so and playing music and i was also a freelance writer in richmond virginia in like from like 98 to 03 for like indie news weeklies and then i i moved to australia for a little while 
and um, while there, kind of supplemented my meager income by uh, freelancing for Vice Australia, and you know, wrote, wrote so wrote for magazines and stuff. And when I got back, blogs were just coming out. I got really into my blog. I had this job at the corporate executive board in Washington D.C. in the business banking bureau, like doing research on business banking, and I just totally did not do that job. I just I had like been like moving furniture and shooting kangaroos in the outback. And I was just like, this is indoors. I'll lie my way to into some fucking air conditioning. You know, and they were, they were like, why do you want to work here? And I was like, well, it has a roof. That's a start. And, um, I just worked on my blog all the time. And my blog got some early attention from like Boing Boing and dig and meta filter when those sites used to mean something. And, uh, Gawker, you know, I would do stuff that like Gawker and Gothamist would pick up. I got into a fight in a coffee shop in Arlington, Virginia, over an, a triple iced espresso that was like the first viral story, it feels like, because this, this is in 2008, you know, and um, anyway, so my blog got a lot of traffic and it got me an interview at Time Warner Cable Time Warner Cable as the director of digital communication. And so I started their Twitter feeds and their online customer service team and managed their blog for a long time. And then just like after being exposed to the collective psyche of the internet day in and day out for that long, the circuits, some circuits fused and fried in my brain and they will never unfry. And I will never go back to it. I am not a Twitter guy now. And I'm, it's because yuck right right gross it is not a coincidence that the most powerful twitter user in the world and the shittiest person in the world were the same person for a very long time yeah. so i have no interest in it and it might be damaging to my career but yeah so i my first day at time warner cable as a digital communications guy was also my first day on stage telling a story and um I went, it was at this biker bar way out in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I thought I needed my passport. I was on the subway for so long. And you had to walk, like when you, to get to the bathroom, you had to walk between the dartboard and the dart players and like hold your notebook up to your head. And, uh, and so those two things started on the same day and they just, they both grew and grew. And then I just like wanted to tell more and more stories on stage and get better and better at it. And I've, a lot of people that listen to the moth don't know this, but when you attend a story slam, they like, they pick 10 names out of a bucket and then you have five minutes to tell your story and they blow like a whistle if you go too long. And then people judge it. They like figure skating. They hold up numbers like 9.2 or 7.3. And I just got more and more competitive about it. And um, am I answering any questions? Yeah, here? no, this like, is, okay. yeah, this is great. I do. I do. I love, I don't know if it's serendipity or what, but that those two things started on the same day. Yeah. If on video I looked a little lost, it's because I'm I'm still wondering about how your early chicken bandmates are doing. Doesn't oh, sound like they made it. the trip to Australia with you. No, what like most uh session players, they died in a ditch somewhere with a bunch of kids they don't know. You know. Thanks. Yeah. So uh so tell me a little bit more about then you've said the 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 competitive nature, the excitement of story time. Obviously that that couldn't compete with corporate politics, right? I mean, it becomes right. a lot more interesting. Uh, when did you decide to kind of go all in? Um, 
I mean, listen, the, if this were like a, the, an HBO limited series, there would be like one moment where I was like, I must do this. But it was kind of this aggregation. It was it was like a river wearing down rock, you know, where and it eventually exposed this weird alien ship that had been buried for a long time. I just like I had testicular cancer in 2009 and it was one of those things where it was like both was and wasn't a near death experience because it could kill you. But I just like super suddenly lost a testicle like, like 24 hours after my second opinion, I was getting it, getting it cut out. And that, you know, sudden trauma like that and any trauma really just makes you more yourself. And I, it just started me thinking like, what am I doing with this? Why am I, do like you know being a corporate cable guy was never like my favorite thing it was never my goal i was always doing it as like a way to pay the bills you know right, right. but then it starts hitting uh hitting this point where like what you they say you you aren't what you you do your job doesn't define you and it's like well you know i have 24 hours and one third of them are spent here. So maybe, it, you know, I, maybe, I'm, I'm with you. I have had the hardest in my life. That is one of the, there's two things that, that really, really get under my, one is, sorry, I always forget about the landline. Um, right. No. So there's two things to uh, that, that you're saying. One is, and these are both related to business. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is I always just, and, and this is how small I am. I get irritated when people use the sort of complexity and, and compare it to an onion. But yeah, the layers it's are all ev- onion. Yeah, every time I peel one back, it's still more onion. It's not complex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other is your job not defining you. When, like, to your point, the the vast majority of your waking hours are there, and then also how much time from like whether they're the Sunday scaries or what, how much time you have when you're not in the office that is also robbed by by that job, right? I mean, it it does define you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. And and it just got to where like I sustained what I would like to call moral injury after a while there. Like once I realized like there I had a, I learned a lot of stuff and I was really fortunate to like work with very kind, generous, thoughtful people who were in my immediate surroundings for the most I'm mean, just a couple assholes, but but like my the woman who was my EVP was really great and like had been a single mom for a while and worked her way from journalism into PR and really had a clear sense of what was very important. And she, I just felt so lucky to have that kind of support there. And so when I won, you know, when I had like a big moth show, like they all got a table, you know, to come out. And and that was really, really great. So, and, and look, I was cared for, um, you know, because I was an executive, I got some stock compensation that enabled me to fund the next chapter of my life and be able to afford, well, I don't know if I can afford it or not, but to think that I could afford to live in New York City as a comedian, you know, and that that's not to be sneezed at. And so I don't want to be so didactic and like, you know, be this like 22 year old in a black flag t-shirt who's like, nah, no corporate ever. And it's like, no, use it for what it's good for, but just don't think it's going to be everything, you know? And right. yeah. And, and now having been doing stand up and storytelling, like hard at it for since 2000, 
Jesus Christ, 2013, you know, I left my full-time job. I, I can't say that this has, this career path has been more rewarding or less soul destroying. It's just in different ways. Like once you turn your art into your income and say this, my job is my identity. Then when your job starts going bad, you feel like shit. Right. Right. You know, a bad, a bad day at the old cable company, I could clock out and come home and be like, all right, I don't have to do that till tomorrow, but this just follows you. So, you know, there's ups and downs with everything. I, I, yeah. Well, yeah. So I had testicular cancer and I left the job to, and then, so there was that. And then there was just like realizing I'm just here to juice the stock price, you know? And I think a lot of PR when done right, PR people are at the table when the decision's being made because you're considering what an end user or customer might want and how they might respond. But a lot of times it's kind of like sprinkled on the turd as it's on the conveyor belt at the door, out the door. We're like, Hey, we just, we got this big piece of shit. We want you to frost it for us. You know? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) no, it fits with all, all design struggles I had is we'll pretty it up later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, well, you know, it's, I don't know if we can. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Two, a couple things that I'd, I'd love to dig in with you because there's there's so many things that you're doing that that I absolutely personally love. Um, oh man, thanks. So, so we'll we'll uh, this will be the choose your own adventure side. Right. We'll get to both. Uh, Want to talk to you about? Uh, you have a, just a truly beautiful podcast called The Reluctant Phoenix, mm-hmm. and uh, there's an email that you have called Cooking Is Coping. Yeah. Uh, and I know also on social media, sometimes you share some some beautiful things related to food that you're doing. You want to talk about cooking is coping or you want to talk about reluctant Phoenix first? I'll do cooking is coping first because it, it opens the door for the reluctant Phoenix in a much shorter story. It's a much shorter story. Yeah, I just I look, I, I really started loving cooking. Um, I mean, I've always liked it, but I moved into a kitchen with a full or I moved into an apartment in New York with a full eat-in kitchen which is kind of a rarity for Brooklyn and um this is you know pretty broke so I cook at home and I cook a lot and when I'm out I'm out all night doing shows and I don't want to just be eating you know pizza over the trash can on the corner in between shows right and I spend enough money on ubers like getting home from shows that i don't really go out to restaurants anymore also i spend so much time in bars and restaurants doing stand-up that they kind of stress me out so i just when i'm in there i just start looking around like is it uh, are they gonna turn yeah. the game off or you know and then i'm like oh you're not here to do comedy it's fine you know so um so i saw you know i cook and i cook a lot and i like taking pictures of it and my friend uh, Jess Salomon, who was a guest on my podcast, suggested yeah. I maybe do a newsletter. And so for about maybe a year or two, I would email out one recipe a week um, of food I was making and tell people how to make it the way I thought about making it. So, you know, I'd use the ingredients and, you know, I'd say the ingredients, but I also sort of talk about how I would choose the ingredients or like what size to make them, you know, and, yeah. and, and try to be as funny as I could with the recipe. And people seem to really, really enjoy it. And then um, I was having a lot of fun with it, but it kind of hit this point where it was like, 
like every other creative project I've had, it hits a point where it's gotten as big as it's going to get without like Joe Rogan talking about it. So where are we going with this? And then once, once my dad got sick, I got so, um, I was just so sad and I didn't know how to do that and not let that seep into the emailing. And I didn't want to put his business out there. So it just kind of, yeah, just kind of dwindled and the joy of cooking stuff kind of left me for a long time. Um, but I do have that mailing list. And now I feel like if I want to announce something to that, you know, mailing list, I try to send out a recipe to earn that, uh, you know, it's like, hey, you gave me this under these these devices, and even though I'm not even or under these under the, you gave me your email address because you thought you were getting cooking stuff. Right. So I'm gonna promote my shit because I do this is a hard work, but let me just give you some cooking stuff so you know I'm not abusing your trust. And so that's become a much more intermittent thing. Uh, yeah, so you don't you don't go with any of the like social media hacks. Here's what's cooking, and then you could give them what you're up to now, right? Uh, <laughs> Why'd you quit social media, Jeff? He wonders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So bef- bef- before we get into Reluctant Phoenix, too, yeah. uh, sorry, there was a bit you did uh, on one of your one of your albums, too, about Southern cooking, where you oh, have yeah. very strong view. It, it's it's hilarious. Uh, I mean, I, I was crying at one point, but your correlation to what makes good Southern cooking and and where it fits or doesn't fit with normal society, I thought was was gorgeous, but oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Strong, strongly held opinions there that I, I thought that I thought they were great. But again, uh, I encourage folks to to go get your albums, listen to it. But the uh, um, uh, <laughs> I think my favorite bit was when you were talking about the the tattoos that are acceptable from uh, an authentic yeah uh, southern, southern yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what did I say? So they got all accept teardrops because they killed somebody in prison or knuckle yeah. guys. Love and hat. <laughs> they love and hat because they're missing a finger for some reason. But and 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 all of it actually. And my cooking is coping thing, and maybe the reluctant phoenix. Like pretty much everything I create, I think it reflects my general disdain for how like pretty and perfection and like endlessly optimized the digital world has made us where like every fucking cooking blog has these like flawless photos and they list this stuff out and it's just so easy. Just caramelize a few onions. It should take 10 minutes. It doesn't, it takes 40, you either set the onions on fire or you cook them for 45 minutes. That's how you caramelize onions, right? So all this Instagram perfect, like everything. And it's like, people don't all just have a farmer's market with like farm to table meat outdoors. You know, right. and so real and real Southern food, like, and so to see that endless optimization applied to Southern cooking, it's like, this is a cuisine that is about people who are dirt poor, have nothing, and they take the meager shit that the literal slave owners allowed them to eat and turned it into something beautiful. You're like pretty ass farm to table, you know, Photoshop filtered bullshit is just not relevant right now like the people that took the lower intestines of a hog and turned it into something that feels like love right do not need your photoshop filters you know so let's just call it what it is you know and uh and and uh that's that's a big one for me call it what it is yeah I, <laughs> so, yeah 
I have a, a good friend of mine and we used, we used to work together in a design studio. He lives uh, in North Carolina now and uh-huh. um, he, he's building a theory that I think your aligns with your Southern cooking, but he's talking about some of the best food he's finding. They're not in restaurants. It's like there there's, you know, the, it looks like something the health department would never allow. It's the side of a road. It's not always there, right? It's not a predictable mm-hmm. schedule, but that's where he's finding some of the best, best things that he's eaten, but it, it goes exactly goes against all of the kind of the, the Instagram and chef is celebrity kind of vibe that, that we're, we're sifting through. Yeah. I, re- I mean, I read a fascinating story. I want to say it was in the Atlantic, but I'm not sure where about why the food at, why you can get really great Southern food and it's all bad for you at Southern gas stations. And it's really like anything else that's awesome about Southern culture. You learn about it long enough and it comes back to horrific racism, but it's essentially because like black motorists needed to be able to stop somewhere, eat something. And so businesses would start a frequently black owned gas stations would offer foods that were like shelf stable, like fried chicken biscuits, things that, you know, if you make collard greens, you don't have to cool them or eat them. They're going to stay good for most of a day. Right. Things that you can eat um, in the unrefrigerated section or unair conditioned section of a train or, or, or so on. So it's like the kind of the green book and gas stations and chicken and biscuits all merge to form that tradition. And, and I'm sure that I'm mangling it because, um, but I would encourage your listeners to check that out. It's a fascinating no, I, story. Yeah, I did see something similar to that is basically why privileged folks can can basically, you know, the convenience of having food at gas stations. Again, it's the, the root story of that is not a pleasant one, right? It, right. That it, was, it was out of essentially life or death necessity for travelers, for right. black travelers. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like, because you don't know if they're going to let you in the restaurant or what's going to happen, or maybe yeah. you're trying to get out of here before sundown. Like, mm-hmm. and and it's also why when I hear people shit on Southern food, by the way, I, I it's actually classism, if not. And I mean, this is you know we're not going to get on. And I didn't come here to talk about our role as like white folks in a you know racially diverse society, but it's like there's a there's a ra- racial and class reason why southerners eat heavy shitty food not shitty but you know what i mean heavy yeah, yeah, healthy yeah. food right and um when people make fun of it it betrays either ignorance or conscious classism in a way that i find disdainful and i can't wait to get on stage and take a dump on yeah, so, yeah. right yeah. yeah i mean there's a lot of privilege when you can critique it right yeah yeah. Um, so go ahead. You go ahead. No, I, yeah, I was just going to jump into then because uh, I, I took us off track. My, yeah. my apologies. But to get into uh, Reluctant Phoenix on mm-hmm. um, on where that kind of came from. Again, I, it, it's, it's one of these things to me, like good innovation and good design, but unprompted wouldn't come up with it. But when I see it or hear it, it made complete sense. And so uh, not only the title, but what you're doing and the interviews themselves are are they're just vulnerable, beautiful conversations. So I, I, I love the concept, but I, I'm, I am curious on, on where it came from and how you got that out in the world. Yeah, man. Thanks. And thanks for asking. So yeah, this, and to be clear, this is a podcast that I've done and I've just concluded season two a few weeks ago. Um, it's called the reluctant Phoenix. And I say it's a series of interviews with people who have had to reboot their lives 
whether or not they wanted to in the first place. And so I'll talk to a wide, really try to have as diverse a variety of guests as possible or of stories. Um, and like I had my friend, Mike is a successful death metal guitarist. And, um, and I mean, his reboot is like a little, it's, it's subtle because he's had the same band for t- over 20 years, but just in becoming more and more of an artist and a dad and a responsible father while continuing to like rock stadiums in Sweden, you know, that's a fascinating journey. My friend Richard Cargillo is a former student of mine and he um, was knew that he was gay in the seventies, but ran from it and closeted himself so hard that he became a monk in the Catholic church eventually came out, left the church, found real love for the first time at the height of the AIDS crisis in New York. And anyway, his story is so full of ups and downs and I don't want to abbreviate it so much that I do it in injustice, but this came out because actually I had been so, you know, in September of 2020, I was lying in my bed. It was about 11 AM. And I was like, why I posted this on Facebook. Why, why would anybody get out of bed? Like, what is it? What do you really think is going to happen for you out there? You're going to go out there. You're going to get, you know, shot full of porcupine quills. You're going to get let down, beat up, disappointed. Someone you love might leave you. And you're just going to end up back here. Like, why do it to yourself? And, you know, my, so my dad had become increasingly more paralyzed from between June and September of 2020. And we were just beginning to realize that he wasn't going to get the help that he needed and was entitled to through Medicare. And it was just heartbreaking. And um, so I posted that and my friend Cara McGurk Allison responded to say, well, you could start a podcast with me. That's a reason to get out of bed. And And Cara was the general manager of my college radio station. So she was a senior when I was a freshman and um, I had been fortunate enough to be friends with some older guys when I was in high school and I would hang out at the local college radio station and I graduated from high school in 94. So like the indie music scene was hitting hard and, you know, it was just North enough of North Carolina that like pavement and the archers of loaf and Polvo. And, you know, we were on that like tour loop for all the awesome North Carolina indie rock bands. And we had Fugazi to the North and whatever the hell Guar was doing and like Richmond punk rock. So it was a real rich soup that I had been fortunate enough to be swimming in before I graduated from high school. And so when I was new at college, I didn't know anybody and I was scared. I went and hung out outside the window at the college radio station until one day the light was on and I went in and Cara was there and welcomed me and signed me up. And I started volunteering and I had radio shows for all four years. And um, it's a huge formative part of my creative existence. I first started telling stories publicly on my radio show that nobody would listen. I mean, we would get calls from the local jail that to request songs and I'm playing like slant and, and Robert Johnston and Sun Ron stuff. And they would make a collect call. And instead of saying who it was from, they'd put the request into things. So you didn't have to accept it. So I'd be like, would you like to accept a collect call from the Harrisonburg County jail? Uh, uh, caller is, I want to hear some Pantera. <laughs> that's, yes. It's like what you would get. Yeah. Anyway. So we met through that and we lost touch 
And um, I, she remembers bumping into me at a bar in New York 15 years ago, and I don't remember it. So we, we weren't like, but we've always kind of been in each other's orbits. And she worked at NPR. She is a founding producer of the Hidden Brain podcast. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. really knows what the f she's doing, right? And so, she was like, "Yeah, I've had this idea about a podcast for people that are starting over." And she said, "I've liked your stuff," and she's followed my albums and my moth stuff and stories and my stand up. And she was like, "I really think you'd be right to host it." And so, it gave me a project to do and sub- give myself to while I was working around, you know, caring for my dad and fighting the hospital and and all of that other stuff. And it, and it really gave some structure to my days and to my life. And I really was able to pour myself into it. And it's such a pleasure to work on it with her because we, you know, I, I, we, I picked the, I probably book 75% of the guests. Yeah. And a lot of the fun is that she doesn't necessarily know them or who they are. And like she had one of my guests was Gary Gallman and she had never heard of Gary Gallman. And it's really awesome to like turn her on to stuff. And then she has turned me on to people before and, um, and to, to kind of cross paths that way. And it also makes me keep it honest. So it's not just another comic talking to other comics about some inside baseball bullshit, you know? And so when I'll be interviewing somebody, she will be messaging me being like, okay, I think we got enough of that. Maybe ask about this or wait, what's that thing? You know, like if I'm using a comedy insider term, you know, she'll be like, what is that again? I'll be like, oh, oh, for the audience out there. So we'll get all that out. And then she edits it together and then would send me a rough cut and I'll listen to it and be like, hey, at one minute 33, I said, uh, too much, or I've got a dorky laugh or sometimes also in a conversation, sometimes the thing that you're building to, you say up front and then you say a bunch of other stuff and then you come back to it. And so... I would kind of make notes to like align it to the story structure to, to take the conversation and turn it into an actual story arc so that you as a listener are along that, excuse me, along that journey. And because I've been doing storytelling and teaching storytelling and performing and, you know, coaching like corporate clients and comics and regular ass people in how to tell a story when she and I brainstorm questions, I do kind of put them along that arc. So the conversation can kind of flow that way and then she'll tighten it up or we'll move stuff around. And then this year we started really having a lot of fun with the music. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's cause I started, I started looking at, um, it's really, really hard to get good music for podcasts because it's expensive and a lot of like good music is always going to be expensive and it always should be. Right. Um, but she belonged to this one music house, but everybody belongs to that one. And, it, it, and so it sounds great. It sounds fine, but I really wanted to sound a little different than everybody else. So I started really digging around and I, like, I miss going to record stores and digging through stacks of vinyl, you know? And so, but I started finding, smaller like boutique music production companies who are making stuff for hip-hop or electronic music that's designed to be sampled or cut up or whatever and started like scouring their license agreements or emailing the artists and getting the permission to do that so that right. we have something that would really you know i love one of one of my metrics for a tv show is how many times do i want to use shazam while i'm watching it 
Yep. You know, and I was like, man, if somebody were like trying to Shazam this podcast right now, I would feel so awesome about that. And so that's a goal for me. And I'm sure I stress Kara out because I don't know how to do any of this. And and I don't want to be the like, you know, spoiled auteur who's like, make this work. It would be better. You know, so like I'll just download stuff and put it in a folder and be like, you know, for Mike, I was just really thinking that this particular set of sounds would work really well can we try to shoehorn it in there you know and i'm really inspired by like lemmy's design philosophy right everything louder than everything else like if you look at if you <laughs> look at approach to design yeah yeah and that's really what i do and you've seen my stuff visually yeah. i feel like it tracks but i mean he was lemmy was actually a really really precise and very hit a very clear aesthetic and everything lined up with everything else, the sound matched the logo, matched the boots and the mustache and every album cover. It's all in line. He had his hands on all of it. Right. And so, but it's, and it's also fun because I just love Car and it's really reinvigorated this friendship that kind of like dwindled, you know, fell off a little bit after about 1995. And then we were like, just right back at it. It's so fun. I love I like, it. I, I yeah, got to say, yeah. I'm a little jealous, though, because yeah. I just, you know, uh, my producer's a dick. Uh, so. <laughs> Is he you? Yes. <laughs> okay. Don't be mean. Don't be mean to my friend, Matt Arnold. <laughs> Matt Arnold. No, that's yeah. great. Uh-huh. I, um, so I'm just then a few years older than you. So I graduated uh-huh. high school in 89. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was like the the guys that I hung out with, it was it was all kind of punk, post-punk music, what was mm-hmm. like kind of in our, our circle. When I was in undergrad, I did student radio, started off, like I remember I put an application in back when there were physical pieces of paper, you had to go and turn them in. And I taped a piece of gum and a dollar bill to my um, to my application, hoping that would at least get the call. And somebody did call me to thank me for the piece of gum and see if it interviewed. And I did ask if the was there a dollar there and the dollar wasn't to be found. So somebody, <laughs> somebody nice. took that, but um, yeah. And I had, you know, doing my first shift was uh, Saturday mornings, midnight to 6am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was just a super late Friday night. So, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't go to bed on Friday, st- like stumble back to the dorm at, you know, like six 30 in the morning on Saturday. And it wreaked havoc on my schedule. And then, uh, I was able, I had a, a morning shift. I don't know why in college I thought a morning shift would be great. Like you know, the, the morning drive would be good, but, uh, mm-hmm. to put things in perspective too, there was, I got in trouble because we were supposed to check the uh, AP wire, right. It was in a closet. I don't know if you, the, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. printer would go. And clearly I had, cause it was, um, at, uh, at Alpine Valley, it was, uh, the Stevie Ray Vaughan accident. Oh. And the general manager calls me, tells me to get on the air and, I don't know why, why I did this, but I just started riffing on the story. And one of the things I said was early reports have Jeff Healy flying the helicopter that crashed and uh, I was suspended from the radio station. <laughs> and that was a good idea. You know, <laughs> you should have been suspended. I was yeah. Like, get, yeah, get him away. That, that's yeah. not good. He's better at just playing weird stuff in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So uh, I know want to be sensitive to time here, but we did start because one of the big things I talk about stuck and unstuck, and you uh-huh. said that might be a rich conversation, but I was kind of curious your techniques for stuck, unstuck, or when you're ta- maybe when you're talking to your storytelling students, is there anything 
that you've been able to apply because you know it's the past 18 months have really been a shit sandwich for you right yeah but are there like so are there things that you're finding hope or finding like inspiration in, in in not feeling stuck lately I think I'm discovering that, and this is the advice I give other people, that like the stories you tell over and over to different people in different parts of your life, those are the ones you need to be doing on stage because that's in you and it's trying to come out. Mm -hmm. And I have some stuff that is like, as I talk to my old, I'm, you know, I, I, I used to bump into so many comedians like on the subway or on the street or backstage you know all week and i burned myself out on comedy real hard in 2019 and and um i used but i used to run into them we used to get to talking and i used to be able to workshop stuff or do stuff in front of an audience and because the hamster wheel of like doing shows was always turning I was always trying new stuff right now. I'm talking to old friends a lot more. I'm making time to catch up with college buddies, obviously, and you know, whoever, but, and the things that are on repeat with me are, I'm like now realizing, Oh, that's the stuff I need to be talking about on stage. So just the other day I started, I have a whiteboard that you can't see right over here. And I started that I started like filling in, like my new bits and, yeah. and, you know, stuff that I like have been talking about the stories I've been telling everybody and to see like, okay, where's this going? What am I doing with this? And then, um, so there's that. I think the hard thing for me has been the just doing it, which is what I tell people to just do. Like in my classes, I'm just like, get on stage once a week. You, I mean, you should get on stage much more than that, but for class, you got to get on once a once a week and if you don't do it we're going to tell be able to tell by the class show who regularly didn't do that you know your kid is going to get sick here or work late there but overall if you don't have a habit of getting up there we're going to be able to tell and I need to follow that advice I think I'm such a perfectionist that I don't want to do new stuff you know, I, I have this fantasy in my head. Like, I feel like I've been fighting a Balrog in a pit for like a, all year. And like, I want to just emerge this like white wizard, you know, and sort of with these cool new powers and nobody and, and kind of not quite remember my old name. But the, there's a lot of special effects behind that. And I don't have that kind of budget, you know. So, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if that helps. What do you hear? What would you tell me, man? You you work with so people? that's yeah. I have uh, so no with the different people I've interviewed. Some are more individual, like in the creative act. Some of the uh-huh. things that like getting on stock. One I really appreciate. I don't know. Do you know uh, the musician Alex Deason? He was in a band, The Damwells. They were in New York. Uh, he's now Broken Baby in L.A talented musician songwriter great and great guy um came here for the workshop so one of his bands broke up when he decided to go to the workshop um but the advice he received is never worry about finishing something that night like a lot of people are compelled to like churn through like force themselves to finish something at night and he said advice he got from a professor was um leave it then you have something to work on the next day so mm-hmm. that your your day starts out with a little momentum you know, there, there's a lot of people trying to get away from the thing 
right? Whether is is that taking a walk? Is that letting something rest? Um, not not letting it consume them. Um, I'm curious to you, kind of throwing it back to you. And this this is with your with your dad. And so if you don't want to talk about it, Fine. too. But Fine. I know, like one of the things I've been working on a long essay because my dad's uh, the the eight months of his, the last eight months of his life is to me is so much, there's so much dark comedy in there because mm-hmm. it, it just family members themselves just becoming more, like amplified more of themselves. And, and a lot of that's on me too, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm super sensitive. To, here's the thing I don't like about <laughs> the way my mom approaches this. Here's the thing I didn't like about what my dad was doing. Here's where I was getting frustrated becoming a caregiver. And, mm-hmm. um, but there are so many bizarro things in there. I've been kind of processing it in, in a dark Irish Catholic kind of way. That's been something I've been doing to try and find the humor in it. I don't know. And, and just one thing before, sorry, before I turn it back to you is just something Richard said in your interview with Richard that really Mm -hmm. stuck with me too, is also um, kind of, it was the idea of, of love who they were and forgive them for who they weren't. I'm, I'm missed, but you know, kind of to that is also with, the bizarre family shit is loving them for the bizarros that they are and forgiving mm-hmm. them for the things where I was like personally offended by, by certain things in this eight month mm-hmm. time span, let alone the the morning that comes after. But I don't know about you about even like are you using storytelling to process anything that you've been through. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I want to, and I have basically, I have chunks that I know are gonna work. Um, you know, right before my dad passed away, when he was on, in hospice, my sister and I, he had become sort of catatonic. And it was a couple of days before. And it was just yeah. such a weird, weird eye of the storm. Because when a person has ALS, they need something every five minutes. You have to blow the nose, suction the phlegm out, right. feed, bathe go to the bathroom, you know, all of it. My dad was to the point where we literally had a a sling installed in the ceiling that we would have to load him into to pick him up and move him on a track to, you know, from the bed to the toilet to whatever. And, and it was a big deal, you know, and it was getting really, really hard too, because he also was so uncomfortable. He just was like, I want to be in the chair. And it's like, you're not going to be comfortable in the chair. You weren't comfortable in the chair. We just moved you to the bed. Like moving you freaks you out, but he didn't have the ability to be like, no, it's worth me getting freaked out. Like he was just like, whatever it is, I want something different. And I've tried to be empathetic to that discomfort, but it was very, very hard physically on my mom and on me and everything. But so when he went on hospice, he became kind of catatonic and he was, it was this weird eye of the storm where it was like, we know what's coming, but we don't know when, you know? And um, during that time, I would hold my dad's hand and just sit there and talk to him in case he was on, you know, in there and my sister would do that. And so I had made this, I'd stress made a blueberry pie that my mom and I were eating and it's delightful. It's a cold blueberry pie made with gelatin. You'd love it. And then my sister had been in with my dad and she came in and she's like wiping tears away. And, you know, my mom has a purple mouth you know, cause she's been eating blueberries and my sister just looked at her and right away just says, damn mom, it looks like you've been sucking that Smurf dick. Like as our dad dies in the other room, 
the fuck am I supposed to do with that, Matt? I got to do something. But like, yeah. I don't even know how to get in front of a club and be, I'm also mad because my sister is funnier than me. You know? <laughs> oh, man. my mom, my mom called me up my on my birthday. My dad was doing really bad, but she called me from Walmart. She said, Jeffrey, I'm looking at this t-shirt right now. And it says on it, it just says straight out of Norfolk. <laughs> which is, you know, the town I'm from in Virginia. And she's like, is that something that you thought you would like? And I was like, yeah, yes, I would like that. She goes, well, that could be your birthday present for me then, huh? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, mom, I don't know if you know how awesome this is that we're having this conversation, but that's, it's a reference to the name of my favorite gangster rap album from like 1989 that, change the way rap music was, you know, and she goes, I, Jeffrey, I know straight out of Compton by NWA. I know. And I was like, okay, then yes, please get me that shirt. She goes, yes. Starring I with ice cube. I know, I know ice cube and Dr. Dre. I know. And I was like, okay, yeah, now I got to wear this shirt, you know? And then at home, like a week later I was wearing the shirt, but, but we were talking about stuff. And, um, one of the the woman who came to bathe my dad, her father, her husband had passed away recently, and I was we were like, well, what kind of what kind of guy was he? You know, just just curious about her family. And my sister said, well, his nickname was Debo, and if that tells you something, I was like, oh yeah, I got a picture. And my mom was like, who's Debo? What is that? And I said, well, mom, the movie Friday was huge in the nineties. It brought like stoop. And like trash talking African American like culture into the mainstream in decisive way. It was hilarious, and uh, I saw it like four times. Jazz probably saw it twelve times, um, and it made a star of your favorite rapper, Ice Cube. And she looks at me, and then Debo was a character in that movie, big scary right. guy. And she yeah. uh, and 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 the movie made a star of your favorite rapper, Ice Cube. And she just looks at me and goes, "It's his birthday today." <laughs> and it was she went across the room and got the newspaper and held it in front of me and said that today's birthday ice cube 52 years old your your mom's yeah. rain manning it on early hip-hop yeah i know and so i you know so these things are like floating around in my head i just don't know how to like getting them yeah. coherent in front of an audience and like what does this mean yeah that's where i'm stuck and i know i just got to get up there and do it and i'm just scared yeah. And I also like, you know what? I also like my life. I like my, I don't, but I like my fiance. I like cooking. I like not trying to earn the respect of a bunch of 24 year olds who are booking everything now. I, you know, I, I, I like that. Yeah. I, I like not being in a small green room while comedians who are doing a lot better than me, who are like emotionally at least 21 are sitting there lying about how much pussy they get. I just like, don't need to be around that. Right. But I love doing comedy. So that's my, that's the, that's the one hand clapping, you know? So before, before we get going, <laughs> one of the last things too, I'd love to ask yeah. guests is just the notion of advice. And mm -hmm. sometimes it takes different forms. And sometimes we've heard something from a mentor, but mm -hmm. we're so young and cocky. It just sounds foolish. As we get older, we realize it that was a pretty elegant, information payload that they were giving mm -hmm. me others are like from austin cleon steel like an artist like when we're giving advice we're just talking to our younger self is there advice that you wish you would have had earlier in your career or good advice that that 
somebody gave you along the way that you still unpack? Um, I think, I don't know if I have advice I wish I had gotten. I think there's advice I wish I was better at taking, which is do this thing for you and for your own pleasure. People are always saying, you got to find a way to love this and do what you love in it. And I am not always good at that because I can become very competitive or very results oriented. And like, so I'm going to have a conversation with Cara later today about the podcast and be like, well, what's going on? Are we going to pitch this to a network or like this costs you money out of your production budget to do this? How are we going to, you know, and that, that, that kills the fun. But I wish I were better at incorporating that advice into my life. And I do wish I had had a bit of a mentor along the way to guide me with some stuff, but here I am, you know, and yeah. uh, this, I feel like this masterless ninja, you know, the Ronin, um, you know, I, and I feel like a lot of advice is just sort of like, there's all this conflicting advice for, for performers and comics out there that like directly counteracts like make sure you stay and hang you always got to hang out but don't kiss ass make time for yourself and it's like well which one is it you know <laughs> so right. you know um let's see uh, i think there, there's a very practical one that i got which is that if you lose your place when you're talking just stop and take a beat Close Seton Smith taught me this. He was like, if you lose your lose it on stage and you don't know where you are, just stop and close your eyes and take a deep breath. And you'll probably remember what you were saying. And if you don't, just admit that you forgot what you were saying and keep going because everyone does it and you don't have to be perfect. I was going to say and the that, audience yeah. is probably also then like sold on it. It feels like a dramatic pause. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then you could joke your way out of it. Like, that wasn't a dramatic pause. I just forgot my joke, you know? And then, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I hope that, is that kind of what you're looking for, I hope? No, that's great. That's yeah. great. I mean, yeah. part of it is just, I'm, I'm, I love just talking to creatives about their craft. So it's like mm-hmm. whatever is authentic to them. It's I'm not looking for a, a fixed yeah. answer. Uh, sure. This is part of my journey too, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so Jeff, uh, I want to thank you so much, uh, for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, mm-hmm. big fan of your work. And, um, for folks, uh, listening to this, uh, outside of my mother, <laughs> please, <laughs> please check out, uh, your, your work. I know you, if folks go to your website, they, they can get routed to a lot of things there. Is there any, and, and then the podcast too is available like on all podcasting platforms. Right, right. I would say that as long as you, Matt, spell my name correctly on this podcast, <laughs> it will be easy for them to find my stuff. Yeah, I have two albums out there. If you want to buy them, uh, they're on Bandcamp. If you want, um, if you can't buy them, go ahead and check them out on Spotify. Maybe just put it on repeat and go out of town for a couple of weeks or something and I'll get a couple of hot dogs next October <laughs> off it. But um yeah, just and then I have yeah the Reluctant Phoenix podcast is the big one right now, and then I got a bunch of stuff on YouTube. And uh, if somebody out there has a viral content machine, just pour all of it in there and make me famous. <laughs> right on, yeah. Jeff. Thank, thanks again, yeah. and I, I will have links to everything in the uh, in the show description. So thanks, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your patience and persistence too, Matt. I really appreciate it. 